Having last Lord's Day completed our studies in the Gospel according to John, you're probably on pins and needles wondering what's coming next. Well, I'll tell you what's coming next. It's my intention to turn our attention to what we call the Synoptic Gospels. The term Synoptic in Synoptic Gospels refers to the similarities that exist between the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, and the Gospel according to Luke. They, all three, see the same things. Not all, all the same things, but they see many of the same things in terms of the events they describe about the life of Jesus. And while there are clear differences in each of them, the overall picture is one of seeing together Jesus in similar terms, often, often presenting the same events at times in the same order, and even sometimes with the same words. John, in contrast, while presenting the same Jesus, does so with very different accounts of the events and sequences, and even his use of vocabulary. Now, we have actually, in previous years in Gospel studies, tracked all four Gospels together until we got to the feeding of the 5,000 where all four Gospels have that account. And then from that point, because that follows in John with what's called the Bread of Life Discourse, I felt, man, this is rich stuff. i got, I got to stay with John for a while. And that's what we did until we got to the end of the book. But you know what that does? That leaves lots in Matthew, lots in Mark, and lots in Luke that we haven't done already. So I do want to go back uh, to that. And the way I'm going to do it, in, re, in, re, in returning actually to our studies in these first three Gospels, is that I'm going to present an introductory study, or maybe it's a reintroductory study since we've been there before. And we're going to do one in each of the Gospels, reintroduce each of the Gospels, and we're going to do that in the next few weeks. We're going to first begin with Mark today, reintroduction to Mark. We're going to go look then at the Gospel of Luke, secondly. And I'm not certain if next week, because it's Thanksgiving, we'll throw in the Thanksgiving message. I don't know. But after we do Thanksgiving, and after we've done Mark, we're going to follow that with Luke, and then finally Matthew. And then after presenting the introductory material in Matthew, in the opening two chapters, um, I'm sorry, after we do the introductory study on Matthew's Gospel, we'll do the first two chapters leading up to the Christmas season. Appropriate, isn't it? Matthew, who does give us the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus, to look at the two, opening two chapters in the lead up to the Christmas season. Before, after that, in the new year, when 2024 comes around, we'll be back in Mark, I think, pretty much to guide us through the synoptic accounts, this, diff, this sim, similar way of seeing the life of Jesus uh, through each of these three Gospels, but using Mark as basically the way to guide us through uh, each of these accounts of the life of Jesus. So, I don't know if I made that clear, but that's the plan. If it's not clear now, maybe down the road it'll be. We're going to begin this morning with an introduction or a reintroduction to the Gospel according to Mark. And this introductory study is going to consist in saying something about, number one, the sources of this Gospel. Where did it come from? Now well, it came from the Holy Spirit, we know. But humanly speaking, where did this Gospel come from? What is its sources? How did it come to, about the way it is? And then we're going to say something about the way the gospel is structured. 
So first it's sources, then structure, how it is actually structured. And then we're going to finally address the question of what's the story that this gospel tells. So thus the divisions this morning, sources, structure, and finally the story of the gospel of Mark. Now let's begin with the sources of the gospel. And speaking of sources, I want to give you a sense of just how this gospel likely came to be, how it was written. Its author, Mark, if it's John Mark that we read about as a traveling companion of Paul on the first missionary journey in Acts, or it's the John Mark that Peter speaks about who was with him, and later Paul says he's useful for ministry. If it's that particular John Mark, he was an early Christian in the Jerusalem church, but likely not a disciple of Jesus in the days of his flesh. He's likely not an eyewitness to the events that he records. He wrote this gospel some decades after the events that he describes. Perhaps it was some 30 to 40 years after the events. What did he think he was doing when he wrote this gospel? Why did he write this document? And how did it become an authoritative life of Jesus, an authoritative account of Jesus obtaining universal acceptance in the church of the Lord Jesus? One of the earliest statements about the writing of Mark's gospel is given by a church historian by the name of Eusebius. And Eusebius quotes an early 2nd century writer. He's closer to the events than you and I are in the 21st century. Uh, this man, Papias or Papias, and uh, he was a second century writer. And Eusebius, the church historian, quotes him as saying this. He says that Mark, that is John Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, that's what he calls him, Peter's interpreter, he wrote down everything he remembered, though not in order, of the things either said or done by Christ. So it's not chronological, he's saying, but yet it's an accurate account of things either said or done by Jesus, for Papias says he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterwards, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teachings as needed, but had no intention of giving an ordered account of the Lord's sayings. So he hasn't told us everything that could be said about Jesus, but yet things that are needful of just taking Peter's teaching, Peter's instruction, and memorializing it in a written document. And then we're told later, in another statement by Papias, that Peter's hearers, that is those who heard Peter orally teaching about Jesus, giving his own account of Jesus in his teaching, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, that Peter, uh, he, he says, uh, his hearers, not being satisfied with just a single hearing, if they heard Peter preach and Peter's now moving on to the next town to teach and preach, they've just heard him once, they want to hear more. Not being satisfied with a single hearing or an oral proclamation, you know, you know what they did? With all kinds of exhortations, they begged Mark. They said, Mark, you're Peter's friend. You travel with Peter. You know Peter. And so they started to beg John Mark, since he was Peter's follower, to leave behind a written record of the teaching given to them verbally. And, he did not, and they did not quit until they had persuaded the man. And thus, they became the immediate cause of the scripture called the gospel according to Mark. And then he tells us that the apostle Peter, aware of what had occurred, because the Spirit had revealed it to him, he was pleased. He didn't say, hey Mark, what are you doing? What are you doing, Mark? You shouldn't be putting it into writing. It's supposed to be an oral message communicated verbally. No, Peter was pleased 
with their zeal, and he sanctioned the writing for the study in the churches. So that's Papias' account of how the Gospel of Mark came to be, how it attained universal acceptance in the churches. It's really Peter's Gospel that's being reflected in the Gospel according to Mark. Whether this, any of it, or all of it, is a trustworthy tradition, it does point out the need that we should feel, that people in the early church felt, for a written account about Jesus. That the oral traditions that had been passed on verbally from the early apostolic witnesses, that those things would be put into writing. From the earliest of times, it was deemed important to have a written account. An account that came from within the circle of the apostolic eyewitnesses, the people that actually saw Jesus, the people that actually heard Jesus and they would have an account that would be approved by the apostolic community. That's why Papias' word that Peter said, hey, this is good. You should have done it. And it should be studied. It should be read in the churches. That it should be approved by the community of the apostles, by the people that comprise that apostolic community, that special group of people that Jesus had with him, who saw the things he did and heard the things that he said were eyewitnesses of his resurrection glory. And you know, the interesting thing is, it's only 30, 40 years. Isn't that a long time? No, it ain't 70. It's not that long. But at age, at, at uh, 30, 40 years out from the time of Jesus, there were still people alive that saw him, heard him, were eyewitnesses of him. And they could have said, hey, wait a minute. This guy, Mark, wrote something that's not kosher. He wrote something that's not true. This is not something that should be spread. It's not something that should be circulated in the churches. But they didn't do that. They read what, he said, what, what Mark wrote, and they said, hey, Mark got it right. Mark got it right. Exactly what Mark is recording about Jesus is exactly the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did. This universal acceptance indicates Mark got it right. But the sources for Mark is not just his memory of the eyewitness accounts that Peter had and others shared with him. You know, Peter himself spoke in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, of another source of knowledge, another source of information about Jesus that is even, in his mind it seems, better than his own eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimony. I mean, think about things you've eyewitnessed, you saw, things that you've seen with your own eyes, heard with your own ears. How in the passage of time, maybe your memory isn't that good. Maybe you think, hey, I think that's what happened. I think it happened this way or that way. And then, of course, you have a wife, <laughs> maybe your children will say, Dad, hey, you got that all wrong. That didn't happen that way. It happened this way. And we tend to always be correcting who has the right version. And it's amazing how sometimes false memories just come into our recollections about things that happened in the past. Well, I don't think you would want to have many false memories about Jesus. I think if you saw what Jesus did and the things that Jesus said, that would kind of be on your eyeball, you know, kind of permanently. When I was a kid, my um, uncle took me to polo grounds in New York. Uh, that's where the Mets played their first two seasons before Shea Stadium was built back in the day. And I remember the first baseball game I went to, and I sat on the first base side of the dugout and back of the Mets dugout. And there's a fellow who used to play in New York, and uh, they moved the Giants when they were there out to San Francisco, and his name was Willie Mays. Willie Mays is one of the really great baseball players. Some people think he's the greatest baseball player that ever lived. 
And Chuck is shaking his head. <laughs> Willie Mays was pretty, pretty exceptional. Pretty exceptional. And I remember as maybe 10 years of age, maybe 10 or 11, I'm sitting at the first base side and I see Willie Mays come up and I, he hit this ball. I saw that little white pillar of a ball making this incredible ascent onto the upper deck in the left field in the polo grounds. And I could close my eyes and see it as if I was there. It's amazing how sometimes the things that are really important or the things that are really exceptional, the things that are really phenomenal, how do you ever forget it? It's like on the inside of your highball, you can see it always because it makes its impression so thoroughly upon your mind. But look at what Peter says about an exceptional experience he once had. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is what Peter says. He says in verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know uh, you didn't follow cunningly devised fables, Peter? He says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Hey, we were there. We saw it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is an account that Mark tells us about in his gospel. We call the transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured. Just like Moses. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain to have a meeting with God, that he had this glow on his face, he had to put a veil over it, it was so bright, then his glory, well Jesus got that glory, majestic glory, and Peter saw it, he was there, whiter than any fuller could whiten a sheet, that was the glory of Jesus that he saw, and he says, we ourselves heard this voice, born from heaven, we saw it with our eyes, we heard it with our ears, we were with him on the holy mountain. What else do you need to say? He was there. He saw it. He was there. He heard it. You know what Peter says in verse 19? He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have something even more certain than sure than even that which our eyes saw and our ears heard. And that's pretty certain. That's pretty sure. What our eyes saw, what our ears heard. We have a prophetic word that's even more fully assured, more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You know, you can take an experience and interpret it whatever way you want and say it meant that or it meant this or it meant something else. But no prophecy of Scripture came from anyone's interpretation but God's own intention in giving the revelation He gives of Himself. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know what Peter says you got? You got the Bible. You got the witness of the Old Testament. And you know that's very often the way in which people were taught in the early church to understand Jesus. Not only by the eyewitness and earwitness testimony of the apostles going from town to town and place to place saying this is what we saw, this is what we heard. They wanted to make it clear what we saw and heard we understand by what the scriptures teach. Remember how Paul says to the church in Corinth with respect to his message? He says, I preached the gospel that you believed 
in which you stand that Christ died for our sins, he says, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised from the dead the third day, he says, according to the scriptures. And then he says, and he was seen. <laughs> and he was seen. There were eyewitnesses who saw his resurrection glory. But Paul says, don't just base it on that. Base it on the fact that God said he would rise. Right? The scriptures said he would rise. Remember how Jesus showed his disciples, the ones on the road to Emmaus, and later on the eleven in the, in the upper room perhaps, where he said to them, he showed them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Again and again and again. The Bible tells us it's the Bible that provides the standard of or even our interpretation and understanding of who Jesus is. So Mark's gospel is heavily dependent not only on the oral tradition, being the faithful interpreter of Peter, but also on the writings of the law and the prophets. And you know, it's an interesting thing in my mind. The very style of the gospel seems to confirm this. Scholars have long debated, what's a gospel? What kind of literature is a gospel? Where did the idea of a gospel ever come from anyway? Is it something new? Is it something necessitated by Jesus? The fact he's so different that we have a new way of writing that's called a gospel? Oh, it's an issue very much discussed. But one thing's clear, that the pattern for the gospel is the narratives of the Old Testament. Again, you read Mark's gospel, you know what you read? You read the phrases like, in those days, and then this, and after that. Read the narratives of Genesis. Read the narratives of 1 Samuel. That's the way God's word talks. God's word talks. And in, the, in those days, this is what occurred. And then this, and after that. And the, and the next thing. The Hebrew is called the Vav consecutive. <laughs> it's a technical way the Hebrews would speak in their relating of narratives. And then you look at the gospel itself and you see that all the citations from the law and the Psalms and the prophets and all the allusions and mentions of a host of figures from the Old Testament. You read the gospel of Mark, you're really in the world of the Bible, clearly. You read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You read about Moses and David. You read about Abiathar, the priest. You read about Elijah. You read about Isaiah. They all come in for mention. And then there's another thing. There's another thing. And that is that each of these gospel writers, you know, you wonder how it is that though they are all speaking about the same Jesus, and sometimes they do it in similar ways, yet there are all these differences that also are there. And I think for, in one way, I think that, you know, the scripture tells us Jesus showed them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself, but the text doesn't tell us what scriptures Jesus showed them, does it? No. The Bible doesn't say, well, Jesus showed them uh, this psalm, or that psalm, or the next psalm. It just says he showed them from all the scriptures, from the law, the prophets, and the psalms, the things concerning himself. But it doesn't specify which of the scriptures that Jesus was showing them. And I think you have in the biblical writers, the New Testament writers, you have a certain preference that some of the writers have from certain parts of the Bible. And I think particularly the prophets of Israel. We've been through the study of John's Gospel. And how often as we've studied John's Gospel did we see that John's very presentation of Jesus seemed to favor Ezekiel's prophecies of things that were to come. You think of things like the Good Shepherd in Ezekiel 36 and 37. 
You think of things like the true vine in Ezekiel chapter, I believe it's 17. You think about even Jesus speaking about the new birth, to be born of the water and of the Spirit. In Ezekiel 36 it says, And I will sprinkle clean water upon them, and they will be clean. And uh, a new spirit I will put in them, born of water and Spirit, right there. In Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, you think of the way in which Jesus is presented as the, as the temple of God. And you think of the dragnet and the fish that are brought in. And you go to Ezekiel 47 and, and John 21, as we saw just a few weeks ago in our study of John 21. It's really all there. John's mentioning Ezekiel again and again and again. Though he never quotes him. Though he never quotes him. Yet it's undergirding everything John's saying, things you find in Ezekiel. So it seems to me, when we read the Gospel of Mark, Mark seems to favor Isaiah. He seems to favor Isaiah. I'm not making this up, folks. I'm really not. That's why I had Andrew read uh, Isaiah 40 and Mark 1. So you see at least one instance where you see that Mark quotes Isaiah. In fact, you read Mark 1 and verse 1. What do you read? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now what's interesting here is that Mark says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, and you know who he quotes? The next words, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. You know where that's from? It's not Isaiah. It's from the book of Malachi. Right? You, you got a cross reference Bible. <laughs> it's Malachi 3. Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And then Isaiah is now quoted in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's exactly what Andrew read from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He quotes Malachi and yet he says it's Isaiah. Why? Because even when he quotes another prophet, it's Isaiah that's molding his view of Jesus. It's true, Isaiah's prophecy, he's presenting Jesus to us. He does something similar uh, later on with respect to the, to the words of Jeremiah. Where Jeremiah said, you've made the house of God into a den of thieves. But before he says that, he quotes Isaiah. My house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. That's Isaiah 58. My house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. So again, he never mentions any other prophet than Isaiah. And even when he quotes another prophet, he's referring to Isaiah. And then even when other Gospels bring in the name of a prophet, such as Daniel, the prophet who spoke about the abomination of, je of desolation in the similar passage in Mark, no prophet's mentioned, just it is written. It is written. He doesn't want to mention any other prophet by name than Isaiah. And then he not only mentions Isaiah by name again and again and again, no other prophet by name, even when he's quoting other prophets. He's referring to Isaiah again and again and again. We saw it a couple weeks back when we looked at the baptism of Jesus that he describes differently than the other Gospels describe it. He has the heavens torn apart, which is exactly what Isaiah prayed God would do, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Isaiah wants the God of the Exodus to come back 
And with the power that opened up the sea, that the people were going on dry land, with the power that brought plagues upon the Egyptians, the God who manifested himself with such great manifestations of his presence and power, that when even the Egyptian magicians could duplicate some of the plagues, some of the things that Yahweh did, they got to the point where they couldn't do those things any longer, and they said, this is the finger of God. That's what Isaiah wanted God to do. A this is the finger of God event. When God would bring the people back from Babylonian captivity. Because you see, that's where Isaiah begins, or Mark begins, telling the story about Jesus. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, quote in Isaiah chapter 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare whose way? Prepare whose way? Prepare the way of Yahweh. Prepare the way of Israel's God. Make his path straight. He said to the nation in the passage Andrew read, Behold your God. He's leading the way for God to come. And you even have the wild animals. Mark alone mentions that he's out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. What's the prophecies that tell us? of the fact that lions lie down with lambs and wild animals lie down with domestic animals. It's Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 65. And Jesus is the one who comes and brings about God's peaceable kingdom where such things occur in the wilderness. He's out there with wild animals, taming the wild animals, and bringing in a peaceable kingdom. That's what Jesus does. But my point is, it's Jesus he sees. It's the historic Jesus he sees. But he sees the historic Jesus through the eyes of Isaiah. Just as John saw the historic Jesus through the eyes of Ezekiel. Because in fact, Jesus could be seen through the eyes of every Old Testament passage that speaks of him. He showed him from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the things concerning himself. It's there to see. These writers did it. But sometimes through different writers. We'll say more. But how, how Matthew sees Jesus, how Luke sees Jesus, and they're different, but yet there's so much, of course, where they do, in fact, agree. Well, I've said as much as I can about the sources for the gospel. Let me say something about the structure of the gospel. Try to do this quick. Mark gives us an introduction and a conclusion to the gospel. Chapter 1, first 13 verses, is the preparation for Christ's ministry. And then in chapter 16, there's a controversial ending of Mark's, of Mark's gospel. Concludes with the resurrection, surprise, and astonishment uh, in the final chapter. And it's rather an abrupt ending. But in the middle, you know what you have? Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry. The ministry of Jesus. And it's presented to us in alternating units of narrative and teaching. Narrative and teaching. You know, narrative is narrating the story, telling the story. Then this, then this, then this, then this, and immediately that happened. And after that, this happened. He's telling a story of the things that Jesus did. And then the teaching units are telling the things about what Jesus said. So you have five units of these narratives telling what Jesus did, and four units of teaching telling the things that Jesus said. That's how it goes in Mark's Gospel. That's how he structures it. And then it's interesting. With the narratives, the narratives, like all the Gospels, are meant to bring us, at least the first three Gospels, are meant to bring us from Jerusalem to Jerusalem for the final week of the Passion. That's how it goes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
But Mark does that trip from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south in a way of beginning the ministry in Galilee and then moving beyond and then even further out into the region of the Gentiles. So it goes like this. The first narrative unit is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's in chapters 1 to chapter 3, verse 35. And then there's a narrative of a continued ministry in Galilee, but you're going beyond Galilee. You're going across the other side of Galilee. You're going into regions beyond the Gentile, where the Gentiles live. And then in the third unit in chapter 7, verse 24 to 929, is ministry in mainly Gentile regions. Jesus' ministry is expanding, sometimes because of the persecution of Herod, and sometimes just because that's how this gospel goes. It's to go to the ends of the world. It's to embrace and include the Gentiles. And so it moves from Galilee to Galilee and beyond to ministry in the Gentile regions. And then we finally get to Jerusalem. We get to Jerusalem. There's first is Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem in the midst of opposition. The opposition of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then the final narrative is the narrative of the death and passion of our Lord. The narrative of his dying and ultimately the final chapter his rising. That's where you go with the narrative. Ever expanding ministry, ministry that leads down into Jerusalem, opposition by his Pharisees and scribes and the religious leaders of the Jews and finally his passion and his death. And the text to me that epitomizes this whole movement of the narratives is simply this, Mark 10 and verse 45 where Jesus says, for the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the story. As he serves and he gives his life a ransom for many. Now interspersed between these narratives we find units of teaching. And very quickly we we first find teaching in parables. That's chapter 4. Teaching on purity. That's chapter 7. Teaching while on pilgrimage, that is on the pathway that would lead to Jerusalem going from place to place to place. Jesus is teaching all along the way. And then he's just teaching on prophecy in chapter 13, verses 1 to 37. And perhaps an epitomizing text to describe the teaching units is the simple statement made in 122, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. That's the structure. And I think I'm going to put that out on a, maybe a, a sheet to, to take home with you, stick in your Bibles, because you probably didn't, you're not going to go away remembering a whole lot of that. But when you read Mark's Gospel, that's a pretty good way to see it, pretty good way to understand it, pretty good way to see the movement and the structure and the, and the uh, alternation between teaching and narrative. What about the story of Mark? I know there's folks who will react negatively whenever the Gospel and the gospel accounts are, are termed a story. Because they think that story means uh, tale, and a tale is often fairy tale. But not every story is a fairy tale. My kids would ask me, Daddy, tell me a bedtime story. I tell them about Rumpelstiltskin. I tell them about the three little bears. I'd act out all the parts. Or with different voices. You should hear me do Goldilocks. It's pretty cool. They say to my wife, Mommy, tell me a bedtime story. It's going to be about our grandmother. (laughs) It's going to be about her trip to Germany when she was a kid. It's going to be about 
the birth of the child that she's telling the story to. She probably tells a story about how I proposed to her. But you know, if I was to tell the story about how I proposed to her, I would tell the story in a way that would be orderly. We try to get in all the details of our courtship and somehow put in there the fear I had of her father when I found out he shot somebody in the court in Bergen County the very day I was going to ask his for his wife's my wife his daughter's hand in marriage. <laughs> he was a court officer and it was a shootout and Dad took out his gun and shot a guy that day. I wasn't going to go after talk to him about his daughter that particular day. Would have to wait. That's part of the story. Part of the story. We could tell stories about things that are true. And Mark's telling a true story. He's telling an orderly account of Jesus. This is Jesus' story. And it's his story that is his story indeed. The prophet states the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's gospel. It's good news. Oftentimes when good news would be uh, spoken of in the Old Testament, it's the report from the battlefront. When war is taking place, a messenger will be sent. Send forth the good news that victory has been achieved. The runner would come and speak about the victory. That's the kind of report that the gospel is. It's a report of God's victory. God's achievement in His Son through His life and death and His resurrection. His anointed one, God's Son, brings about the victory. John tells us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is rooted in the prehistory of Old Testament prophecy. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, and the quote in Isaiah 40 and verse 3 comes from the time when Israel was in captivity in Babylon. They were in exile from their land. They were deported away from their land. They were held in ca- captive to a foreign power in a foreign land. And the passage is telling us God's going to come to deliver. And from all appearances, this deliverance is expected to be a theophany. You know, when Israel came back from Babylonian captivity, it wasn't, you know, the Euphrates didn't open. And there were no plagues. There was no appearance of God on a mountain or any such thing. And yet it's supposed to be a great, something even greater than the exodus from Egypt. But that awaited the coming of Jesus. Jesus comes as theophany, God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Show us the Father, they said to Jesus. Do I have been with you so long, Philip, and do you not know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the enfleshment of Israel's God. Come to bring back people, not just captive to Babylon, but captive to sin. Come to provide rescue. Come to provide salvation from the powers of darkness, from the demonic powers that enslave. I'll send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. What way? It's a way of deliverance. It's a way of salvation. It's the way of God appearing in human flesh to bring salvation to those in bondage. In so doing, he would gather a people whom the powers of his kingly rule, his kingly reign, would be established. They would in turn be his witnesses to the ends of the age.
to the ends of the earth. They would confess him before governors and kings, bear witness to his goodness and his glory that others would believe and confess the name of Christ as the gospel is brought from Galilee, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the way of the Lord Jesus. The way that he walked, the way that he teaches his disciples to walk. Mark's story is the story of how Jesus entered into Israel's story, redeeming and restoring how we too might enter into the story of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that we too might walk in the ways of the Lord. It's a united story. It's, it's, a, it's a story that's united with the Old Testament story. It's not telling a different story, but it's telling how God has fulfilled his promises. How all the promises, all of the patterns, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament come to their fruition, come to their fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And inasmuch as it achieves that end, it is indeed the greatest of all stories, the greatest story ever told. May God be pleased to bless us as we continue to map out the story that Mark gives, the story that the Gospel writers give, that we might see Jesus more fully and more clearly. We might know him and love him supremely and follow him faithfully. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this gospel. We're thankful for all of your written word. We're thankful for the instruction that we receive from the scriptures. And apart from your word, how deep the darkness of this world would be. We thank you, Lord, that we do not have to walk in darkness, but in Christ we have the one who is the light of life. We ask you to be pleased to bless your people. Join, draw near to us now as we, as we remember him who loved us and who gave himself for us as we come to the supper of remembrance. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.